Tshuva is a very hard parsha. Uh, first, the external part of it. You know that the parsha preceding Tshuva is Mishpatim. And the parsha before that is Yitro. <coughs> now, it's perfectly reasonable to say that Yitro and Mishpatim are the parashiyot of Matan Torah. Those two parashiyot. Moshe Rabbeinu goes up on Harsinai, goes down, Harsinai goes up, down. But in general, we understand that Moshe Rabbeinu went up on Dvav Sivat to get the Aseret and Dibrot, and then he went up again to stay 40 days and 40 nights in order to get the whole Torah. And even though that sentence remains very unclear, we don't know what it means that he got the Aseret and Dibrot, because we know that Today, Yisrael maximally only heard two of the Dibrot. Anochi and Lo Yelechem. So if they only heard two of the Dibrot, when did Moshe Rabbeinu hear the rest of the Dibrot? But okay. So it's a mystery. Like the movie script has not been clearly written. Also, <coughs> when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, what was it exactly that he received? Um, of course, the question, even in the Gemara, is let's say the parashah Bil'am, or anything that is historical in the Torah, right? The parashah Bil'am appears in the book of Bamidbar, after Matan Torah. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu and Har Sinai, did he know the parashah of Bil'am? And if not, it doesn't, you know, make obvious sense to say that he knew the parasha of Bilam. Because after all, uh, that would mean that there's no free choice. That B'nai Yisrael are kind of locked into a situation which can never be improved upon and never be changed. And I don't know if we like that idea. So the parasha of Bilam. The Parashat Bilam, the Gemara says, Moshe Katab Parashat Bilam, as though somebody had a question about it. But Moshe Katab Parashat Bilam. So, we don't know exactly what Matan Torah was about. We assume that it was about Torah Shabbat, even though I just explained. It's hard to say that the parasha Bil'am was included in that story, or any of the other stories <coughs> in the book of Bamidbar. Very hard. Very hard to understand exactly. On the other hand, what about Torah Shabbat Peh? And what is Torah Shabbat Peh in the time of Moshe Rabbein? So we know... We know that there's a limited kind of Torah Shabbat that Moshe Rabbeinu must have received. In other words, when the Torah says that you should make a box of what we call tefillin and you put them on your head. Over here, somebody must have said, I mean Moshe Rabbeinu must have said, what's that? I mean, it cannot be that no one had ever put on a pair of tefillin ever in the world. And when HaKadosh Baruch said to Moshe Rabbeinu, that he knew immediately what that was. 
So Moshe Rabbeinu must have received explanation along with the text. Must have. Otherwise, he didn't receive anything. If the Torah says, but the Sukkot So we know that a Sukkah, what we call a Sukkah, is not exactly the same as the hut <coughs> that the field workers build here, even in Eretz Israel, you could see that. You know, they build uh, they have four posts, and they put grass on top of it, or some kind of straw, and they have shade. So they work, and they can, they can uh, leave work and go to the shade. But that's not a sukkah. Because a sukkah, we know, has defanot. It has walls. The sukkah that we build on Sukkot. So someone must have told this to Moshe Rabbeinu. Because if Moshe Rabbeinu received the Pasuk, could it be that he didn't know what the Sukkah was? Or that he got it wrong? I, I, I mean, someone must have explained it to him. It must be, that's Tarash of Alpeh. But there's another Tarash of Alpeh that we know about. Cases, all sorts of cases and surprising uh, <coughs> things like uh, like if there's a tree, and the tree is leaning over on your sukkah, can you use the arbor of the tree as schach? Now that's not written in the Chumash. That case is not in the Chumash. So did Moshe Rabbeinu know that case? Or didn't he know that case? And if you say that he knew some and he didn't know others, so how do you know which is which? Which did he know? And what was he teaching to B'nai Yisrael? So there's in the parashiyot of Yitro and Mishpatim, there are information gaps. We don't know exactly. We sort of act as though we do. You know, if you ever went to a... Uh, you know, you go to these events that are going to create Baalei Tshuva on the spot. You know, they have these instant Baalei Tshuva events. So those guys who teach in those events, they know the answer to all these questions. But I do not know the answer to that. And I would love to know. But I can't go to these weekends because I'm not a Baal Shuva. So, so it's like I'm stuck. But this is only the beginning of the mystery. <coughs> the Parashah of Truma it's a parasha with very explicit, di- explicit directions on how to build the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which was, as you know, a portable version of the Beit HaMikdash. Portable, you could take it apart, move it, and then put it back together again. And this portable version of the Beit HaMikdash, the ultimate Beit HaMikdash, Mikdash Hashem Kodenu Yadecha, Shirat Hayam, that there will be a Mikdash, that was like the, the dream that everybody knew. Everybody knew that there would be a Mikdash, but right now, there's going to be a Mishkan. And that Mishkan had Kalim in it. Vessels, and those vessels are described in remarkable detail. 
remarkable to tell when you consider the fact that Shabbat, a day that affects every single Jew, every week, is not described, basically not described at all in the Torah. Thus there is a Pasuk, Lo Tevaru Eish, Mekob Moshevotechem, Biyom Shabbat, which talks about lighting a fire. You shouldn't light a fire on Shabbat. Okay. But uh, if anybody's ever tried to learn Halachot Shabbat, just to learn the Halachot, I'm not talking about figuring them out. It's just sort of like an endless pool. It, it, it's just there's another one, and another one, and another one, and another question. And there are even unresolved questions. Lately I've been thinking about the crockpot question. You know, about the crockpot question. <laughs> do, you use, do you use a crockpot? Yes. I thought it was like it got a little less... Uh, uh, there was a time where I think we owned three of them. You know, but then somehow my wife stopped using it. I don't know, I don't know what happened. Because of the Shiloh. The Shiloh, you know. Some clever guy in Yerushalayim said to himself, you know, you know how a crockpot is? There's a pot. And it goes into a, like a bleth, but the bleth is shaped like the pot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it has a top. Yeah. And usually the top goes into the pot. Mm-hmm. Like it's not like on top of the pot. It goes into the pot. So somebody said, isn't that Hatzmana? Now, I can't really explain. Well, Hatzmanah is on Shabbos. You can't take a pot, a hot pot, and put it into something that will make it hotter. Even if the stuff is cooked. There's very few opportunities of this type. The Gemara talks about putting it into a bunch of a pile of coals. I mean, you don't usually have a pile of coals around to use in your house. But anyway, he said, he said, well, hey, look at this, look at the crockpot. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. And, uh, uh, remarkably, Rav Shlomo Zalman, who was a friend of Rocha, was a very reasonable person, uh, seemed to agree. And there it was off and running. Didn't you put it in before Shabbat? It doesn't matter. Uh. <coughs> There's a solution. Even if you... <coughs> Even if you think that the crackpot is a problem, you can solve the problem very easily. You take a, uh, you know, like an ice cream stick, like a little piece of wood, and you stick it in between the top and the pot, so that the pot is not 100% surrounded, the crackpot is not surrounded 100% by whatever. And if it's not surrounded in its entirety, it's not a problem. Right? So you don't have to buy anything. Everybody has a popsicle stick at home. Of course, if you have a milk, it's a popsicle stick. <laughs> 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 you have a place you can choke, so you have to watch out there. But, but you can get unused popsicle sticks. <laughs> or you can get a tongue depressor from your local doctor. <laughs> <coughs> so there are a lot of so, so that the amount of detail in the parashiyot of Truma and Tzaveh the parashiyot that describe the Mishkan is unbelievable when, when in fact all that detail the knowledge of all that detail was only necessary when they built the Beit HaMikdash after the Beit HaMikdash was built it was built it was finished 
They didn't have to know how to make a Aron the, uh, the, uh, or the Mizbeach. Or, it was all built already. So it was all built. That's the end of, of the story. So it's remarkable the amount of detail that goes into, into the parasha of Truma this week is Truma where they have many of the Kalim discussed <coughs> so I want to look at so, so I mean uh, uh, immediately immediately you say to yourself well, well what, is this, what is all this stuff what does it look like so in the old days they had the line drawings of Kalim of the Beit HaMikdash that were made from your impression of the Psukim today we have a better deal you can look at the uh, website of Machon HaMikdash and you know in the old city there is such a such an operation and they have very nice uh, um, color drawings they're not three dimensional but they're very nice color drawings and they also appear in the Mach Zorfiyom Akipurim that was published by the Machon HaMikdash which is a very nice glossy book you know, well, every page shines. You have to keep it out of the out of your eyes somehow. But the pictures that they made are very quite nice. Do they look like what really was going on in the Beit Hamikdash? I haven't got a clue. I imagine that they are that they don't, because whenever you construct something, when you construct a building from words, I mean, can you imagine building a building today from words? without any drawings, without any architectural rendering, it can't be done. So, again, if you try to figure out, if you try to figure out what these things look like, based on what it says in the Chumash, you're going to run up into trouble. So, in this kind of Chumash, you see, not this, there's another Chumash with Rashi that has pictures in it. This is like a Haredi uh, uh, edition. But this one, this one I took off the shelf here, it doesn't have pictures, but that's something that has pictures in them. But you should remember, they only give you a rough idea. And most of those pictures were probably drawn by non-Jews. Right? That were then just reincorporated into uh, the Jewish book world. Because the people who knew about what it really looked like are not around. We do know, we do have an approximate notion of what the menorah in certain cave looked like <coughs> from the... Uh, What's it called? The Arch of Titus. Oh, yeah? Arch of Titus. So if you look at the... Again, you don't have to go anymore. You can just Google the Arch of Titus and get it bigger and smaller, sideways and frontways, and and you're not tired. If you actually go yourself to look at it, your feet start hurting and and your back hurts, it's really, you know, these are out-of-body experiences. You know, it doesn't have any effect on your on your body, and you can eat strawberries and cream at the same time. Strawberries and cream, you know. In England, when they have these regatta races, <laughs> you know, people show up <coughs> with strawberries, or the or uh, the tennis. Where, where's the tennis? Wimbledon. Is that in England? Yeah. Uh, okay. So they also go with strawberries and cream. It's like. Uh, so if you've never done it before, never got the cream on your pants or, or something, it's like an exciting event. But the English are very stubborn. Is anybody here from English? <laughs> They're stubborn about their traditions. They have this tradition to eat strawberries. 
at uh, significant uh, places, but you don't have to go anywhere. You can sit at home, you know, look at the Archipedes and switch to the Wimbledon tennis and eat strawberries at the same time. And the strawberries will be cold and fresh instead of being hot and soggy. But look, you know, this is the modern world. So we don't know, I mean, I want you to understand, we don't know what any of these things really look like. Because we don't know what the arch of Titus are. Okay, whoever did it, whoever did it, I mean, probably tried to represent what he really saw, but he also was limited by his own talent and the materials he used and the stones he, he had to engrave or inlay. So, so maybe it was a good rendition. Maybe it wasn't so good. Basically. I have no idea. <coughs> but I want to look at the one plea that caught my attention this year that we have never spoken about. And that plea is the Shulchan. There's a table. And the table was put into what we call the Kodesh. In the Kodesh, there's the Ulam. Well, uh, in, in Bayit Sheni, the language that was used by Shlomo Abelach was Ulam Hechal Devir. Ulam is the big hall which has the big altar in it and where they slaughtered the animals that were brought for a korban. They had rings that were, that were connected to the ground and they would go to the head of the animal one of the rings to keep it from moving around and then they would slaughter it that way. And then they had to collect the blood. <coughs> so that the Kalim, most of the Kalim that I used, that I discussed in the parasha of Truma, are clay Mikdash. Kalim that belong to the Beit HaMikdash, which means you can't have the Beit HaMikdash without them. So the Aron, you have to have an Aron. The Menorah, you have to have a menorah. And the only thing I'm telling you is not perfect because in Bayat Sheni everything changed. And there was no Aron in Bayat Sheni. But I mean, that's what the Beit HaMikdash described in the Torah is. It has an Aron. It has a menorah. But then there are Klisharet. A limb that I use when the process goes, for example, after you slaughter an animal, you have to collect the dam. You have to collect the blood. The blood was collected in like tureens. Those tureens were clay charek. The reason you had to collect the blood was because you had to have a way of stirring, keeping the blood stirred so that it wouldn't coagulate before they did zrikat hadam. The spritzing of the blood which was part of the avodah for every animal korban. Birds and animals, every animal korban. They had to spritz the blood sometimes under the zbeach and on Yom Kippur, on the parochet above the kaporet. We'll get to that eventually. So in order that the dam should remain spritzable, it had to be stirred all the time by one of the kohanim to keep it from coagulating. And after they stirred it, and they spritzed it, they poured it down the drain. There was a drain in the Mizbeach, in the Mizbeach, outside, the big Mizbeach that was outside, right, the Mizbeach was a, <coughs> was square, was big, and there was a ramp that the Kohanim went up with the animal parts, 
in order to sacrifice them, to give them to Hashem somehow. Right? And that took place outside. Now, in the Heichal, that's the Ulam, also called Ezrat, Yisrael. It was the place that the people came to. But then there was like a little house. And the little house was divided into two parts, one-third and two-thirds. The two-thirds was called the Heichal, or the Kodesh, in the language of the Mishnah. And in that Heichal, there was a menorah, there was what's called a Mizbeach HaZahav, a Mizbeach covered with gold leaf, <coughs> on which animals were not sacrificed, but what was put there? The Ketoret, right? The Ketoret was made of two parts, right? There was the the Bissamim, the spices, and there were the coals. So the Bissamim and the coals were in two in English, they call them censors. They're like uh, ya'eh, a ya'eh. What's a ya'eh in English? Sometimes I can't remember English. Well, a dust, dust bag. I mean, it's that shape that you don't have to use it for dust. You could use it for anything, but it was, that was how they got the coals and the spices, and then they mixed them together on, the, on this Mizbeach Hazahab, and that produced a cloud of uh, sweet smelling a cloud of sweet-smelling stuff, for whatever reason. <coughs> so there was the Mizbeah, and the Menorah, and a little footstool, and there were several other, and there was a Shulchan. There was a Shulchan, a Shulchan is a table. Shulchan is a table, and on this table, each week they placed twelve loaves. Each week they placed twelve loaves. And there was a miracle that was associated with these loaves, that the old ones were as fresh on the day they took them off the Mizbeach as the day they put them on the Mizbeach and they were given to the Kohanim to eat. <coughs> so these loaves were put on the Shulchan and functionally the Shulchan was there in order to have a place for the loaves. There was something else. The loaves were put into a kind of a, um, it was it was kind of a series of drawers. Not, not drawers that are like like you could slide the, the bread in. Six one on top of the other, and another six one on top of the other, and then there were a few clay charrettes that were used in making these loaves. You put them down to rest in the middle. So the miracle was that the, the loaves remained fresh. The loaves remained fresh. And what I'd like to do is try to explore if we can get a hint together about what this shulchan was for. Which might mean, what were the loaves for? What was it that was going on exactly? Okay? So you see that there's a pasuk. Vedatati al hashulchan lechem panim lefanai tamid. So that this bread, lechem, this is a pasuk, I'm reading a pasuk, right? Lechem panim, so Rashi says, shiyesh lo panim kemoshe peirashti. Maybe it means the way the bread looked 
Rami, this is straight from the Gemara. The Gemara says the Yeshlo Padim. What does Yeshlo Padim mean? I really, I, I really don't know what they're talking about. I know what the word Padim means. It's a face. And you know that you can make bread with all kinds of odd shapes. That's not a problem. Right? You can go to a store in Yerushalayim that sells breads. And you'll see that bread comes in odd kinds of shape. You know that Hasidim have this way of making bread where there's a key. You know that kind of bread, the schlissel. You can could, you could put a key, you take a key, a certain kind of big key, and you put it into the batter on top, and then you bake it, and then you take away the key, and lo and behold, you have the shape of the key on the collar. So there are all kinds of things you can do with, uh, with the collar. But here, when the Torah says, Lechem Panim, we don't know what that is. Sheyeshlo Panim Kamosha Pirashti. I've already explained what that means. Uminyan HaLechem Veselem Marafotah Beforeshim Be'emor El HaKoanim. So Rashi references us to a potluck or to Psukim in Vayikra. Emor El HaKoanim is the name of the parish, the parish of Emor. What are we going to find that? Minyan HaLechem, the number of breads. Veselem Marafotah, the way you organize them on the other Shulchan, is all explained in the parish of Emor. So let's look at the parish of Emor. Velakakta solet. Solet is the word that means the best flower. Right? You know, you, you do it and you do it again and you do it again and you get a B'nai Brak sifter and you do it till it can't come out. You, get, see, you sift it so fine that you can't sift it anymore. Solet rafito tab halot so you have a, a measure. Shnei esronim. I don't know anything about reality, so I'm skipping that. Those of you interested, tavo lechem bracha. V'samza otam shtei marachot sheish hamarachet al hashulchan atahor l'shnei ha hashem. When atata ala ma'arechet levonazaka, levonazaka is a spice. Saka is pure. Vaitala lechem lazkara ishevashem. Azkara ishevashem. Look at the Rashi. Rashi says, Sheish ma'arechet. Rechet. Sheish chalot ha ma'arechet ha'achat. There are six in one ma'arechet. A ma'arechet is a, like some kind of a structure. The way you build it up. You put the six chalot, one on top of the other, at one side of the, of the, of the table, and six chalot, one on top of the other, on the other side of the table. Ratata al ha ma'arechet, it's in singular, little cups, like little cups of spouts, you know, that's kind of like milk, you put milk into a little cup, they used to do that, when we were fancy, no, we're not so fancy. And we use it for the wine on Friday night. <laughs> How much levona in each of these comets? Comets is this, you pick it up with your pinky. Small amount. 
they apparently thought that was a good way of doing it. The spice called Levona, the lechem lascarash, ain min alechem ligavoa klum. And Rashi says, none of the bread goes to Hakadosh Baruch Late, late ain min achala ligavoa klum. Ela levona nikteres kishigatzal kino to the kol Shabbat to Shabbat. Askara comes to the word Zion Kavresh, Mizkor, to remember the Levona is that spice that's left over. You eat the bread in its entirety and then you burn up the Levona. And that's a kind of Siman in heaven that even though heaven didn't get anything, this is an important idea. I remember it. You should remember it, that there's something about this lesson which is strange. Because the basic principle of the operation of the Beit HaMikdash, or the Mishkan in this case, is that there's a sharing principle. You bring things. Some of it goes to the Beit HaMikdash. Some of it gets burnt up and goes to HaKadosh Baruch You don't get back everything you brought <coughs> but here you do. You get it back. Right? Pasuk Tet. Let's read it in the Pasuk. Vaitala Arona Levana Bachalu Benchom Kadosh Ki Kodesh Kedoshim Hulo Meishay Hashem Chokolam. So who gets it? Aaron and the Kohen, they're able to eat all these breads. All these breads finished. Rashi. Rashi Vaitaha Mincha Hazot Shekoldavar Haba Mincha Tevu Abaklau Mincha I call this a Mincha sacrifice. Even though you know Mincha sacrifice, they usually fry. Right? They fry, and, and, and that's a korban that is eaten by the people who bring the korban and the kohanim. This is also a Mincha because Rashi says that anything that's made out of flour is called a Mincha. They eat the bread. That's why it says, So Rashi's helped us out a little bit. Right? Rashi's helped us out a little bit. Uh, he told, he us, told us that, that all these psukim, even though they're written in singular, refer to all twelve chalot. All twelve chalot. Oh. So let's look at the bottom of the page. This is a quote from the Mordechai, the guide of the perplexed, part three, chapter forty-five. The Rambam is involved in this chapter in explaining to us the rationale for the various mitzvot that apply to the Mishkan. You know that the Rambam was a great believer in Ta'amei mitzvot. The Rambam believed that it was worth the effort to search for the rationale for doing mitzvot. Now, according to the Rambam, the rationale for doing the mitzvot are either personal achievement, you become a better person, if you give charity, or if you do chesed. (coughs) Alternatively, the Rambam would say that it was a community need that was being expressed. 
community need, meaning that people had a problem. And this would solve the problem. So the Rambam says, or seems to say, this is also disputed, but let's agree with the Ramban in this matter, that Karbanot, sacrifices were a human weakness. And all the idolaters in the world gave sacrifices. And so the Torah tells us to give sacrifices in a special way. Stay away from that, but do it in our way. Do it our way. <coughs> and this throughout the ages, until we came to Eretz Yisrael, has been a basic halachic premise that the halacha can be used to create behavior patterns that will protect Am Yisrael. This is the halacha. So that Chachamim, their weapon was, they said things that are nominally kosher will make them unkosher in order to prevent people from mixing too much with the non-Jewish population. This was the way the Chachamim ensured that the Torah, or that the mitzvot of the Torah, would protect us from our own weaknesses. I'm just saying it's similar to the Rambam's idea. (coughs) For us, it's kind of lost all its uh, esteem because the non-Jewish people that I work with Somebody told them that if you eat a steak in a glat kosher restaurant, it might taste pretty good. So they don't mind. So instead of you consorting with the goyim in the house of the goyim, you consort with the goyim in the house of the Jews. I'm not sure that there's a big difference there. But that's why in, in Eretz Yisrael, in Eretz Yisrael, these humors end up as being not ways of saving us, but ways of destroying any possibility of getting together with people who are not exactly like ourselves. Which is okay. You know, I'm not talking about, you know, army tactics. And maybe it's a good tactic. But for me, I think we lose out. You know, we... We, the people who are eating special food all the time, are, are losing out because we can't talk to the people who don't eat that kind of food. So, <coughs> maybe I'm wrong. So the Rambam says, look at the Rambam. The Rambam says this. As for the table, this is the penis translation of the Moran of Ruchim, the best of the best. As for the table and the bread, there was always to be upon it. Quoting our Pasuk. They said, what's always in Hebrew? Ah, Tamid, you see the Pasuk all the way to the top of the, of the, uh, of the sheet? V'ratata ala shulchan lechem panim lefanai. Tamid. So the Rambam also says that. What's always to be upon it? I do not know the reason for this. And I have not found up to now something to which I might ascribe this practice. Now the Rambam was not shy and uh, uh, unable to devise interesting interpretations from time to time, but the Rambam says he was stymied. 
at this shulchan, at this table, that's holding these breads. They couldn't understand what's going on. And why would HaKadosh Baruch Hu commit to this miraculous bread ceremony? What for? What metaphorical interest is there for us in this bread? So I say that the Rambam pointed us in this way to an interesting, to an interesting fact. And that is the word Tamid. Tamid. Now the word Tamid has a general meaning. And that meaning, the general meaning of the word Tamid is recurrent. It happens recurrently. It doesn't mean it happens all the time. But it happens recurrently. Now I quoted a, a bunch of Sukim. Uh, he, Then you see the second one, Shemot, Perak of Zion, Pasukah, the beginning of Parashat Tetzaveh. Vatat Tetzaveh, B'nei Yitzhak, B'kurei Lecha Shemen, Zayitzach, pure olive oil. Katit, Lama'or, that you, you chop it up and out comes the oil, and you use that for Ma'or, for lighting up the menorah. Where's the menorah? It's in the Heichal, the same place as the as the Shulchan. And then it says, Ne'er Ne'er Tamid. Now what is a Ne'er Tamid? In fact, when did, when did the Kohen Gadol <coughs> light this candle? When did he light it? At night. Bein Ha'abayim. Towards evening. And how long did it burn? How long did it burn? Till morning. It burned till the morning. It didn't burn when it was light. You didn't need a candle burning. You didn't need a, a flower, but it burned at night until the morning. So if I ask you to explain what the word tamid means, so I think it means recurrently, every day, every night, but not 24 hours of the day. The next pasuk, which has the twelve stones on it. Each stone representing one of the Shvatim of B'nai Yisrael. So what does the word Tamid mean? When he comes into the Beit HaMikdash with Zikaron to remember with Me'ashem Tamid. Me'ashem Tamid. What is Tamid? When he goes in. When he doesn't go in, this doesn't happen. When do they do the Avodah and the Beit HaMikdash? Daytime. Never at night. During the daytime. So what does Tamid mean? Again, recurrent. Recurrent. The next pasuk, V'letata al-Khosh al-Mishpat al-Urim v'tatumim V'yuh al-Lei v'aron v'kawad v'nashem v'nashem et Mishpat b'nei Yisrael al-Ibos me'ashem Tamid What does Tamid mean? When I go into the whole Pasuk Wherever the questions arise You do You look into the Choshen Mishpat The Urim v'tumim They give you direction But when do they give you direction? When there's a question So what does Tamid mean? It's always the solution 
it's what we used to call, but I used to know more about these things, a discontinuous function. <laughs> I'd like to tell you what that is, but I'm not sure I could pull it off. <laughs> a discontinuous function. You know that, that, that the word function represents the, the, the relationship with, with, with something you can draw and something you can uh, uh, compute. That's what a function is. So if you drew a discontinuous function, it would be discontinuous. It means whenever there is a reason, it happens. When there's no reason, it doesn't happen. That's what the word tamid means. A function that is... Here's another person. Every night, but not every day. Tamir again, a discontinuous, ongoing function. Always, but not always. It's more like it means forever, but not always. That's what that's what Tamid what Tamid means. Okay, that's enough. That is enough. So we see <coughs> that the word Tamid is used again and again in these parashiyot about the uh, Kalim, about the, <coughs> the vessels that were used in the Beit Hamikdash, and it means discontinually or discontinuous function. It just goes on and on, but not always. Whenever. That's Tamid. Now let's look at our Pasuk. So we have already discovered that in this Pasuk the word Tamid means always. It's a continuous function. When you take the sick, the twelve breads off the Shulchan, you put twelve new ones back immediately. And during the seven days, the seven days that pass from one act to the other, they're always there. They're always there. So that the word Tamid has two meanings. One is the one that is usual and refers to the discontinuity of Tamid, and the other which is special and refers to the Shulchan which will carry the weight of these twelve lechamim always. There was never a time when these two lechamim <coughs> did not exist. Uh, these twelve lechamim did not exist. And two more You see, the second source is Blachim Bet Perekafe starting from Pasuk These are the last to king of the book of Malachim. Right, the, last, the very last Sukim of Nevi'im Rishonim. And they say this, Yo'yachim was one of the last kings in Yehudah. And the Galut, you know, the Galut of Yehudah didn't happen in a day. It took time. First the the royal family and then the, the artisans and you know these, this is what we call the Babylonian exile. So Yehoiachin was the king of Yehuda, and he was in exile for thirty-seven years, 
The name of the Babylonian king was Evil Merodach. Nasa, he raised up. Bishnat uh, Malcho, when he became king, at Roshio Yechim Melech Yudam, he brought him up from the, uh, from prison, from Beit He was 37 years in exile. Evil Merodach redeemed him, pardoned him. You know, Clinton, on the last days of his presidency, pardoned people. So, Vayedaber ito tovot. He spoke to him nicely. Vayitein et kis'o me'al kis'e ha'vachim asher ito v'pavel. So, Adil Merodach reinstated him as the number one king after himself. What exactly that means, I don't know, but we can understand that he, that he was somehow uh, <coughs> was re-established as an important personality in the court of the Vilni Meroda. Rishina as Big Day Kill O. He allowed him to change the clothes that he wore in jail. And what, what, what is the sign of Malchus? What is the sign of Malchus that Azil Merodach granted? That granted to Yoyachin? He says, the Prophet says, Achal Lechem, he ate bread. Tamid lefanav. What is El Cholechem Tamid lefanav? Whenever he wanted to eat, he was able to eat with the king. He didn't need a special invitation. He didn't have to. It wasn't like Esther Amalka who was worried about confronting uh, Achashverosh, but he was able to go in and eat. So this idea of eating with the king. Kol yumei chayav. Tamid is status. It's just something of status. Now, v'aruchato, aruchat tamid, nitnalo, me'et ha-melech v'ayom b'yomo, kol yumei chayav. And his food, his, was served him tamid, Tamid always, whenever he needed it. Whenever he needed it, whenever he wanted to eat. So I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to somehow see that the words used in describing Avil Merodach's uh, concern for, for the exiled king, for the exiled king Yoyachim, somehow helps us to understand something about the bread that was in the Bikdash, and that was eaten by the Kohanim, was there Tamid, that was eaten by the Kohanim, it was always available. 
was always accessible in a way, but before we kind of see that full force, I want to make another point. You know, Rav Cook wrote a book on, uh, I think I mentioned it, Rav Cook wrote a book on, uh, on vegetarianism. And in the book, uh, he, he states quite clearly that he thinks that that's the way the world will be. The world will become a world of vegetarians, of vegetarians, but for a different reason, not for the reason that people <coughs> claim. I mean, today, not because vegetarianism is healthier, or because uh, killing animals is crueler, but Rav Cook had this idea, Rav Cook had this idea that the similarity between man slash woman and the animals in the world was such that it cannot be that God's ultimate intention is that we should kill the animals to eat them. I think what, what Rav Cook meant was that the animals, unlike the vegetables, have, have a kind of intelligence. I mean, we may be able to mark distinctions, like the animal intelligence, not like human intelligence, but according to, according to uh, the Rav Cook, if we had a real awareness of ourselves, and we had a real awareness of the other things in creation, we would come to the conclusion that eating animals was problematic. Actually, killing animals was pro problematic. Because the animals have a life in them. They are granted life as man is granted life. And so the Rebbe uses as a, as a proof <coughs> the fact that Adam HaRishon and Chava, according to the Gemara says in Sanhedrin, were not allowed to eat meat. They were only allowed to eat what grew on the trees. But Tosot says, Tosot adds to the Gemara, that Adam HaRishon and Chava in Gan Eden were allowed to eat carrion. That was not a problem. There was, wasn't a problem with eating the meat. It was a problem of treating the animals differently than treating, treating human beings in this regard, not having regard for life. And that problem, Rav Cook said, Rav Cook said, Gan Eden, after all, is the future. I mean, there was no reason that the Torah should tell us the story of Gan Eden if it's not going to happen again. I mean, what, what, what's, it, what's important for us? Why is it important for us to know that Adam and Rishon and Chava were kicked out of Gan Eden if Gan Eden is not something that we should pine for and yearn for? So that's what, that's what our cook thought. So you have an interesting fact in the Beit HaMikdash. You have an interesting fact in the Beit HaMikdash. The Karbanot, the Olat Hamid, the Allah that is brought, Hamid, the, the, the sacrifice that's brought twice a day, every day of the year, is also a discontinuous function. It's brought in the morning and it's brought in the afternoon. 
but there's no korban in between. Right? The korban is burnt in its entirety. It's burnt in its entirety. <coughs> and you don't get to eat any of it. No one eats any of the korban tamid. The lechem hapanim, the lechem hapanim is there all the time. And the kohanim, unlike korbanot, which are shared usually, the kohen gets a little, the baal gets a little, some of it is burnt, it goes to heaven. Unlike that, that model, the kohanim receive everything. And they eat everything. Every last morsel. So it would seem that, and also, also the korbanot are primarily given and taken care of in the big ulam, which is kind of a public thoroughfare. A lot of people walk in and walk out, and that's where the korban tamid is given. The lechem apanim, the lechem apanim is given in the, in the hechal, where only special people can enter. So that, I don't know what represents precisely the higher level of Kiddushah, but if I had to guess, I would say certainly it's the eating that takes place in the Kodesh, in the, in the Heichal, the Kohanim eating the bread, that represents the higher form of human engagement. But outside of that Heichal and the Ulam, the sacrifices are given, as the Rambam says, it's a secondary state. It's the way the non-Jews serve their idolatries. And of course, we do it with rules that differentiate us from them, that nevertheless, it's un- not unreasonable to think that the Rambam thought, the Rambam himself thought that really animal sacrifices would not be resumed in the Messianic era at that Beit HaMikdash. So the Lechem HaPanim, the Lechem HaPanim represents the highest form of, of uh, being supported by heaven. After all, all the food is, on the, is in the world. It's all there. But when the Jews, when Adam and Chaba were in Gan Eden, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told them clearly, just the fruit on the trees. No animals. This was the highest form of existence that we could aspire to. And Adam and and Chaba were not able to live up to that level. Right? That level of things. But you know when they were punished. When Adam was punished, he was punished. But what was going to become difficult for him? Is it not difficult for them to shoot elephants and eat them? Or catch the whales? Save the whales? Catch the whales? Is that going to become difficult? No. What's going to become difficult? Getting the, getting the bread out of the ground. That was the difficulty that Adam and his children would confront living outside of Gan Eden. In Gan Eden, it was all there. What was all there? The fruits, the vegetables, the bread, everything was there. 
outside of Gan Eden, it was all the same. But suddenly, part became difficult. You couldn't depend on it. You couldn't depend that you're going to get the wheat. You couldn't depend that you'd be able to make the bread. Nobody said that about the animal world. The animal world's fine. When Noah went into the Teva, he brought a lot of animals with him into the ark. It wasn't a problem. The problem was the bread. Because the bread, and whatever else bread you know, means, <coughs> bread represented the higher form of human eating. And that's the eating that took place in the Heichal. Not the eating, the lower form of human eating that took place in the Ulam. So that even though the Rambam says in the Lord of Buchim, I, the Rambam, can't figure out for the life of me what this Shulchan is doing, we like apply a little chutzpah to it and say, well, there's an idea. We have an idea. Of course, <coughs> we're safe because that idea was generated by Rav Cook, who actually wrote the book on this, on this subject and declared that the higher form of uh, human living and life was connected to, the, to abstaining from eating the animals, just as other Marisha and Chavling and Aden abstained from eating the animals. Have a good Shabbat.